Well, welcome to our brand new series called The Best Christmas Ever. It's short for how to have the best Christmas ever. I know that uh, if you are just joining us here for the first time here at Trinity, uh, that this particular church, the people in this church, are experts at Christmas. I know this. I'm an expert at Christmas. You may not know that. But when it comes to all of the things that we are going to be talking about, I hardly had to do any research. I know exactly how to have the best Christmas ever. Well, maybe not exactly. Um, I have plans on what I think would be the best Christmas ever, and sometimes those plans don't always go as planned, and so I need help in trying to just evaluate what is the best Christmas ever. And maybe you're the same. Maybe you have, here's what I want to happen, but then those kinds of things don't necessarily happen. So what we're going to do is take What God says is how to have the best Christmas ever. We're going to learn together or relearn together and discover or rediscover how to have the best Christmas ever. And here's just a hint. I'm going to give away the entire point of the whole series already. And I know that's dangerous because you always want to say, you know, here's a cliffhanger, why you should come back next week, why you should come back next week, and here's why you should come and those kinds of things. So I know this is dangerous, but I'm just going to give it away all to you free of charge. Say amen. Uh, Some of you are excited. Most of you here in the front were excited. I think my wife was the loudest. I couldn't tell. But here's the secret of how to have the best Christmas ever. It's about prioritizing the right things. Because Christmas is one of those things where if you're not careful, your calendar can just explode with stuff and your uh, wish list can explode with things and your desires can explode with expectations. And so I have taken, because I'm an expert at Christmas, I have taken the priorities of what we need to have at Christmas. And today we are talking about how to have the best Christmas lights. Don't everyone overreact. We like Christmas lights, right? I mean, if we dimmed all the lights in the room, which we're not going to do, because then we have to run around and close curtains and things like that, you would, I could easily turn around and just point to the tree right here and the tree right here behind the pulpit you just see those lights we love that when you get a christmas tree if you go and cut one like we do the very first thing you put on your tree is the christmas lights right because the christmas lights set the tone for the tree you'll decorate your house with what christmas cake will you decorate your home the exterior of your home with christmas gifts with candy canes no that's dumb do you know what you put on the outside of your house at christmas lights some people like to put inflatables on their lawn that's not the same that's cheating and when you drive by during the day there's nothing more depressing than a deflated nativity scene or Santa Claus. Like, you just go by and you go, 
whew, that's, that's, that's depressing, and we're trying to help us have the best Christmas ever. We want to see those things glowing bright. And so yesterday, in the middle of hail, in the temperature that it was, I was out on the roof, on the roof, putting lights on the church parsonage. And it started off every year with the same expectation that I've always had. That'll take me an hour, tops. <laughs> About 9 o'clock to 12.30 was how long it took. And the problem was that as I went to get the bin out of the basement where all the lights were, the lights, someone must have snuck down to my basement and took all of them and just knotted them all up and tangled them all up and wound them all up in the wrong way and just threw them in a bin and left them there for me to find. I think it's the elf on the shelf who does that. I have like sinister suspicions that, that this elf has sinister motives and he's in your house, that he's, he's, he's judging you in some way and he's trying to make your life miserable at Christmas time. So uh, that's not part of the sermon, it's just a pro tip. If you've got an elf on the shelf, just toss it. <laughs> we love lights. We want to get in the car. We want to go see houses that are decorated. We'll go find the best neighborhoods, or maybe you live in a community where they have a festival of lights in the park, and you go and you drive through. You'll pay money to see how other people have decorated their homes with lights, right? You will go and you will find people who have spent thousands of dollars to have a choreographed display of lights with uh, uh, Christmas music playing or, or redone Christmas carols, even hard rock Christmas carols show up at those moments, and you'll roll down your window in the middle of winter in Rochester just to hear the music and the lights play. That's how much we love lights. But, oh, man, does it always start out as a tangled mess, right? I mean... It must have been someone else who put the lights away. It couldn't have been me. No one would do that, right? I mean, you, would, you carefully get ready for next Christmas by putting away your lights carefully, winding them properly, maybe even buying some light storage things. But isn't it strange? That every time you take them out, there's two things you must do. Untangle them and check and make sure the lights work. Right? The lights worked when you put them away. You pull them out and half the string doesn't work. Like, what happened? I, I googled, what is it we could do to learn how to fix the light problem? And Home Depot came up with a video. And I went, oh, wow, Home Depot's really on the ball here. They've suggested this is how to fix, you know, dead Christmas lights. And it was a video on how to fix LED lights. And they said, well, just buy this tool. It's an LED light tester. You put it on the cable line, but, but I don't want to spend money. <laughs> I don't want to do that. Like, you have to buy a specific tool just to, in order to fix LED lights. Like, I, I just want to be able to pull a bulb, know exactly which one it is, and put another one in. And it's interesting that 
some lights work when you're not looking at them. And then you look at them and all of a sudden they blink off. Right? You can go over and you can tap them. And half of the lights don't work. We were talking about the lights on our tree. Uh, trying to take a picture of it so that we could post... Uh, uh, because we, we know how to do Christmas the best, and we wanted to post a picture of our Christmas tree, and when Krista took the picture, she noticed that the lights were flickering at a high rate of speed that the camera caught, that the iPhone caught, that we can't see with the naked eye. And some people buy lights where it's just flickering so fast that a camera can see it, and we can't, but they get sick watching the tree. So that's no good. Some people, when it, comes to, when it comes to Christmas lights, this is what they do. That's what they end up doing. They try to untangle them. They realize that, you know what, this isn't going to work. And then they just put them up wherever they can, and they grab their favorite beverage and a book, and they just start and chill out and relax. Uh, hat tip to Amy Sampson, who posted that on her Facebook page and saved me a lot of time trying to find an image of this. This was really, really helpful. Uh, but this, this particular image is not even the beginning of the challenge of trying to get your lights untangled, right? Because what happens as you finally get them all untangled and you start to put them on the tree or on your house. Do you know what happens to them? They retangle. You you start to wind it. I had this yesterday where I was trying to get the uh, lights along uh, the railing of our front porch and I was winding it around and it was amazing that every time I tried to pass it through the bundle, even though I had less and less lights because I was moving down the string, the, the tangle of lights started to get wider and bigger and, and a, a more just, yeah! So why do we do it? Why every year do we underestimate how much time it's going to take putting up our lights? Pulling them out, knowing you've put them away neatly. Pulling them out and discovering that someone has rearranged what neat is, has compressed them all and wound them up. You untangle them, you test all the lights, and then you start to put them up, and they get tangled as you go. Why do we do it? Well, I think the simple answer is, it's worth it. There's nothing like driving your car and seeing streets ablaze because a number of homes together have put together light decorations. Or to sit just in the comfort of your living room or your family room and look at the lights on your tree. It's worth it. However... As we've shared, and as you know, it's important to know that when you go to put up your lights, you're going to have to deal with tangles, right? And the reason why, of course, we're talking about Christmas lights is not so that you develop patience, is <laughs> not so that you persevere. It's because it's a metaphor for the way we live. No matter what we choose, no matter what we choose to do, there will always come a sense 
of things getting tangled up. Sometimes that life tangle comes because we made wrong decisions or we didn't make the right decisions. Maybe we did nothing, but our lives get tangled like that. Or maybe it's because of what someone else did. Maybe they did something to us or maybe they did something on such a grand scale that it affects us. And we know what that kind of Christmas is like from last year. And that tangled mess can leave us to the point where we're that bear. Just looking at our lives going, this is just a tangled mess, so I'm just, my life is a tangled mess, and there's no way out of it, there's no way forward, there's nothing I can do, I'm just going to sit down, have a glass of wine, read a book. We medicate, and we don't deal with life's tangles. But what if we took that same principle of wanting to see the lights and applied that to the rest of life? If we want to see the lights at Christmas, we have to untangle the mess. What if we did that with our lives? What if we started to untangle the mess? Because I know the tangled mess is the opposite of what we want. So why don't we untangle it? And how do we untangle it? Well, there's all sorts of recommendations. People suggest that you, you fill up your calendar, you get to all sorts of Christmas events, you put on music, that sort of thing. I actually think that starting with lights in your life is a great solution. Let me show you what I mean. If you have a Bible with you, turn with me in them to the book of John, the Gospel of John, the story of Jesus' life that John wrote, chapter 8. And it's here we read one of Jesus' famous metaphors, something that you may have memorized if you grew up in church, Sunday school, but you learned this truth about Jesus. In John chapter 8, verse 12, we read this. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Jesus calls himself the light of the world. A human being is the light. And he promises that if you follow him, then you gain something. You exchange walking in darkness for the light of life. And what Jesus is saying here is that follow me and you untangle the mess. Follow me and you untangle the mess. Let's unpack the metaphor a little bit that Jesus is using here. Is it easier to walk in darkness or is it easier to walk in light? Which one is it? It's easier to walk in light. Even in a room that's familiar to you, even in your own home, turns out that little elf on the shelf likes to get off and take the kids' toys and put them on the floor, particularly Legos, right? 
And when you get up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom, that elf on the shelf has superhuman strength. He moves the bed just a little bit so that as you're walking back to bed, you find it with your shin or your toe or something that makes you doubt your sanctification. <laughs> it's harder to walk around in darkness even when, even when you're in familiar environments. There was one night uh, this past summer uh, that uh, I thought, you know, it'd be nice to sit out on the, the patio on the, in the backyard. And, uh, you know, hopefully it'll be bug free, but I'm going to go out and uh, sit out there. And it was dark. It gets dark in the backyard at night. And I thought, you know, we need a little bit of light to see. And so I turned on the uh, light switch to the back porch. And I'm glad I did, because as I turned on this light, I saw these two little beady eyes from a skunk eating from, from our bird feeder. From the seeds that had fallen off, it was eating on the ground. Don't worry, it wasn't Spider-Man. It wasn't Spider-Skunk, right? But it was, it was just staring at me. And I thought, I'm glad I turned on the light. I could see a little bit of the porch, but I couldn't see beyond it. And I thought, oh my goodness, if I had gone out there, Imagine our dog Lucy had gone out there with me because she always has to go outside. When we go outside, she just wants to be with us everywhere we go. And so imagine she went out. I think she would have went through the railing trying to get at this skunk to play. And the skunk would have greeted us in a... Yeah, in a, in a very rough, uh, smelly way. When you walk in darkness... It is far easier to end up in situations where you don't want to be. And the good thing about walking in light is that light shows you not only where you are, but how to get where you're going. And Jesus calls himself the light. In other words, follow me, walk in my footsteps, let me direct you, and I will give you life in return. Jesus is the light that if we follow him, we can start to have the best Christmas ever. Thanks so much for coming. We'll see you next week. I hesitate to actually say this because I know this wouldn't be true of us. But I have heard that there are, are some Christians who struggle with following Jesus. There are some who don't believe in Jesus who wonder if he's worth it. I get that. But there are some Christians who struggle with following Jesus, that Jesus is good for Sunday morning, but not for the other mornings, for the afternoons, for the evenings. He's that Christmas decoration that we put away at 12.01 when we leave the building. This is the place where Jesus is. But he's not in the other parts of our week. He's not in the other parts of our lives. I don't even know if I need to continue because that's not us, right? That's not us. That's, that's other Christians, other churches. But, for the sake of, you know, just learning a little bit more, but why Jesus would call himself the light. Let's learn about why we should trust him. 
let's learn about why we should do that. Because I think that those, those Christians that I talked about, which aren't you and I, by the way, they're other Christians, they're other, they're other believers, uh, they struggle with the sacrifices that Jesus asks us to make. It doesn't seem like following Jesus is a life of fun. It doesn't seem like it's a life for the, the party. It doesn't seem like it's giving us all of the life that we want. Jesus is actually saying, walk the narrow road. It's actually, the, I think it's the toughest challenge for Christians to really wrestle through, is that it's the challenge of following Jesus is a road of narrow path, a road that's a narrow path, and it's full of sacrifices. And we want to look at all the other options that life has to offer to make us happy. The Alliance, uh, our denomination, has a saying, Jesus only. And quite frankly, some Christians, not us, other, other Christians, other, other believers, they choose Jesus and. So just for the sake of, you know, learning a little bit more, I'm sure you won't have to do anything with this. What is Jesus saying when he is the light why is he worth trusting not just on sunday but every day a few verses earlier in john chapter 8 there is a story that's actually really perplexing to me in the sense that there's a it all comes in italics in your bible And it says at the very beginning that some of the earliest manuscripts do not have these verses. And I struggled with that for a while, but I realized that it wasn't this particular story. It's not that it's not true. It's just that scholars don't know why it ended up there in the text. Why didn't it end up in another position in the Bible? And so they really like it. Now, I think John wrote it. And I think he included this to demonstrate what it means to trust Jesus as the light for your life. This is what he says. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people were gathered, where all the people gathered around them, around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, 
she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Do you want to know why Jesus is worth trusting every day, not just Sunday? Because with Jesus, there is not only correction. There is no condemnation. There is no condemnation for the way that you have lived, for the things that you've been caught doing, for the things that you've refused to do. In Jesus, there is no condemnation. There's a reason why we dismiss kids to tack kids because we're about to have an adult conversation. Why do people commit adultery? Why do people have sex with other people's spouses? Why do they do that? There's probably a rare few that wake up and think, I'm going to commit adultery today. But I think on the majority, the reason why people commit adultery is because they think the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. There's something missing in their life. And having sex with this person, being close with that individual, that's going to provide meaning. That's going to provide purpose for me. I don't know which one of these this woman is. But I don't think she got up one morning and thought, I'm going to commit adultery. Especially in that culture. Because if you do, you lose all sorts of rights and privileges. You lose all sorts of societal standing. Today we have a different, more flawed understanding of, of biblical marriage, but back then it was even more sacred. In a Jewish culture, so for her to be caught and used as a trap to see if they could trick Jesus was really astounding. What was missing from this woman's life? She felt that sex would give her intimacy, give her connection, give her everything she needed in life. That's my best guess. Scripture doesn't say that that was the case. You can certainly have a different case about this woman. But at this moment, she knew her life was over. Possibly, literally, because the law said if someone is caught in adultery, willingly sleeping with another person's spouse, they are to be stoned as the law of Moses. And they're trying to trap Jesus, right? They're trying to trap 
Jesus using this woman's activities to say, do you kill her or do you let her go? If he kills her, he looks horrible. If he lets her go, he looks weak and soft. And so Jesus ignores it. Writes something on the ground. We don't know what he wrote. There's all sorts of commentaries on guesses of what he wrote. I have no idea what he wrote. But imagine being that woman who knew that her life was figuratively over. Because who would welcome her no matter if Jesus let her go free? She, would, she was now publicly exposed, all pun intended, that everyone knew who she was. She was that woman. Or her life was figura- not figuratively, but literally over. And Jesus does something that I think surprises everyone. He just says, okay, we're going to follow the law. You go first, provided you have no sin. You start. If you're completely right with God, if there is no sin in your life, if there's nothing that you're hiding, then absolutely throw the first stone. We'll get in line. And people started to leave. The older people started to leave. Why? Because they had lived longer. And they knew that there was a reason why the sacrificial system kept happening. Because they knew they had sinned. They knew they were sinners. And all of a sudden, everyone starts to leave until the only people are left are who? That are left are who? Jesus and the the woman. And I don't know what picture you have of God. But isn't it interesting that Jesus never leaves in the middle of her sin? As a matter of fact... I think he draws her close rather than pushing her away. In our legal system, two things matter, right? It's not only the act, but why the act happened. There's the incident, and then there's the motive behind the incident. In God's legal system, there is a third consideration. It's who you can be regardless of the act, regardless of the motive. It's what's possible. God just doesn't see you in your sin. He sees what you could be in Christ. That's hope. The reason why Jesus is the light of the world is that he gives hope to everyone, regardless of how they've lived, regardless of what they've done, regardless of what they haven't done, or regardless of what they've done or had done to them. He gives hope. That light gives life, and the life starts with hope. He gives a way forward without condemnation. That's what light does. There is no situation 
no sin that you cannot come back from. Aside from full rejection from Jesus. He doesn't condone sin, by the way. You notice that, right? He tells the woman, I don't condemn you, but don't sin. Leave your life of sin. Change. It's interesting that in the process of that, though, he's not saying, you can't be near me. You, you're, you're that kind of a person. I can't have you close to me. I mean, there are some people that we just don't want to be around because of what they've done, right? And to Jesus, no one like that exists. There is no person who has ever been born who Jesus does not want to be close to. And I find that fascinating. Because when we think of righteousness, we think of a wrathful God who stands on the edge of heaven with lightning bolts in his hand who gets the one who sins and he loves to do it he loves to stomp on people like they're ants and that's not god that's not jesus jesus doesn't condemn as a matter of fact i think that best way to think of what Jesus does is really that he untangles our lives for us. He uses his light to untangle our lives for us. Now think of that. If there was a set of Christmas lights that I could purchase that would untangle themselves, I would pay any amount of money anything in order to have those kinds of lights and jesus comes and says as the light that's what i will do for you there's no other christmas lights that untangle themselves jesus comes and untangles us he provides a way because to jesus what's more important than condemnation is closeness what's more important than condemnation is being close to him. And we have a theological term that talks about that, actually. It's called communion. Communion is um, something that we celebrate once a month here at our church. It's for anyone who is a Christian who gets to, uh, who has declared their faith in Jesus and follows him to come and, and participate. But it's more than that. Communion is more than symbols of his broken body, the, the bread and crackers, or his, his blood, the, the wine or the juice uh, that we all partake together. It is a symbol. This table, the Lord's Supper that we call communion, that is a desire for God to be close to us. That is what Jesus wants to do, is be close to you. He is the light of the world, which means he is the hope of you and me. And when he looks at us, he says the exact same thing that he said to that woman caught in adultery. 
I don't condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. Go follow the light. I'm going to ask Krista to come. And um, as we prepare for communion, let us think about what that means for us and God, what that means for us and our sin, the offer that has been available to us. Look at these verses in, in 1 John 1. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. We have communion with each other, not just God. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. That's why he doesn't condemn, because he paid the penalty for our sins with his death and resurrection. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. As we prepare for communion, I want to extend an offer to those who are considering but have never given their lives to Jesus in faith to ask him into their lives, to follow him as Savior. I want to give you an opportunity to do that. It starts with a confession of your sin. I don't think you have to be specific. You know that you're a sinner and that you need a Savior and that Jesus' death and resurrection paid the penalty for your sins and purchased for you eternal life. You can surrender your life to Jesus simply by saying that to God in prayer as we distribute the elements. Or maybe you're a Christian that, well, you failed to follow Jesus from time to time. Maybe you are that kind of Christian who I jokingly referred to that you know, it probably isn't in our church, it's in other churches where Jesus is Lord Sunday mornings, but not the rest of the week. There is hope for you, and there's hope for me. Because in Jesus, there is no condemnation. There is communion. Don't take your sin lightly, but don't be afraid to bring it to him and confess it because he will forgive you and purify you of that sin. It is not your master. Christ alone is. That's what this table is. There is no condemnation. Only communion.